Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP at what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app. The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO podcast. Today I am joined by Mark Hogelsang. Mark is a sporting goods industry veteran, having worked for Nike, Eason, and Adidas. Mark's roles at Nike included the Global Football Apparel Merchandising Director position and the U.S. Equipment Sales Director. He's also served in sales operations roles at Adidas, and Mike's final role at Eason was a Senior VP of Sales and Marketing. And Mark now, he invests his time in sports startups via the Oregon Sports Angels, where he co-leads the organization's membership committee and he is also the host of the heavy hitter sports podcast which showcases inspirational stories of game-changing athletes and business leaders so excited to jump in today with mark and learn from a guy that has won everywhere he has gone and made an impact far beyond just building great companies Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Likewise. I was a guest on your podcast, the Heavy Hitter Sports Podcast, a couple weeks ago, and we met months ago, and just your experience in business and sports and athletics, and we're going to get into it. And I was just like, all right, if we can figure out a way to get you on our show, our listeners would be blessed. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. So let's talk about Dale Murphy. I'm an Atlanta guy now, right? He's a Braves guy, Braves legend. I think maybe hopefully one day a Hall of Famer. And you had a cool full circle moment with him. Tell about uh, that story. He went to my rival high school. He was a year in front of me and miles ahead in terms of talent. We were both catchers at the time. This was before he transitioned into playing the outfield and third base. And 6'5", 225, super nice guy. And he was on a gifted team, awesome coach, great pitching staff. And at the time, even as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, I knew that he was going to be the greatest athlete that I ever went up against. In his park, there was no fence. And I was playing, in addition to catching, also center field. And I could play him 380 deep. And I can remember one moment. I was at the plate, and I had a runner at second base, and I was sacrificing. And I pulled back. It was a high pitch. In one motion, he threw our, Tim Brassfield, who was our player at leading off the second base, didn't even have a second to turn back to the bag, and he was out. So amazing athlete. Yeah, it's cool. You come across athletes like that in your career, and some of them make it, some of them don't. But when they're t- physically and gifted like that, it's just cool to see it. And, yeah. and then you ended up reconnecting with him years down the road. Is that right? But yeah, <clears throat> he lives in Utah, but he is connected to Nike. And actually, 
we had a lunch. This is the individual Craig Cheek, my boss's boss at the time, who now has left Nike and is running the baseball project here in Portland, trying to attract Major League Baseball to Portland. I don't know what Dale Murphy's ultimate involvement is going to be, but we just had a nice launch in the campus at Nike. So, Yeah, and, and Portland is like a baseball, it feels like Mecca, like it feels like they need a team and they have a, a really cool history with baseball. Does it sound like maybe one day we'll get a Major League team back there? Hopefully. I'm part of Oregon Sports Angels and one of our new members is a 15-year veteran, Jed Lowry. And Jed, too, is involved in some way with the baseball project here. So he's optimistic now that the A's, who he previously had played for, among other teams, have gone to Vegas or will be going to Vegas in 2026 when Major League Baseball expands. Portland's going to be at least one of those cities under consideration. There's some other good ones like Nashville and Salt Lake City, but hopefully we'll see. Yeah, I think Nashville would be a cool place for a team, right? It's a growing town, the music city, but it's a little bit too close to home. And I'd rather keep everybody in Tennessee cheered for the Braves kind of thing. So we'll see, but really cool. Let's talk a little bit. You've had a really amazing professional career in sports. Let's talk about your experience at Easton. Everybody knows Easton. I use an Easton everything. It feels like growing up as a kid. What was your involvement with the business Easton specific around baseball and such? It was a dream job for me. Actually, I guess the ultimate job would have been playing center field for the San Francisco Giants. Clearly had no talent, at least to get to that level. So to be a young product manager working for Easton and being consumed with baseball and softball, and also at that time for me, hockey and football was great. And I had worked for a woman who was married to the president. So this goes back to, hey, it's all about connections. But I will say this. I had to convince, ultimately, the president of Easton in three separate interviews to hire me. Because I was coming from a retail background, and yes, I had my MBA, but I did not have pure product management experience. I clearly had a passion for the game, and I really wanted to work for the company. And so ultimately, I sold myself. And that worked out, I think, for everybody, because within five years, then I was the senior VP of sales and marketing. So that was a great experience, young team, growing a business, consumed with sports that I really enjoyed and loved. So perfect. And you're a guy that has a dream, has a vision, knows what you want, and it you figured out just a way to make it happen. People that are listening to this, they want something else. They want to be somewhere else. They want to accomplish great things. What was your strategy to making some of those things happen? We'll get in even into your career with Nike, but these are like dream positions for people. And you just said, hey, I'm going to figure out a way in three interviews to convince this guy to give me a job. I don't necessarily have the experience, but it worked out. How do you go about making things happen? That's a great question, and I do a lot of mentoring or counseling, especially with USC students who have just graduated or are about to graduate, and it's so challenging giving good advice. There has to be passion and a willingness to commit fully to whatever you're going to do from a professional standpoint, and I think that's a little bit harder to come by today than perhaps when I was coming out of graduate school because I think with my era now as a graybeard, I think so much of our identity was tied up in who we were working for and what we were doing. But back to your initial question, I think it's having that passion radiate and showing the willingness to do whatever it takes in order to get that job done, going up the sleeves, especially as you're just starting out. And then I think it's hitting the ground running. I think especially today, the era of training programs is long gone. I know when I literally started my career working for a department store in the Bay Area, I had that traditional six weeks worth of training. 
But I think now in corporate America, the opportunity to really execute those training programs, it's diminished greatly. So now it's an opportunity for people to prove themselves really quick and actually to be curious, to be a quick horner. And I think the other thing is to not fear making mistakes, because if that's how we learn is by Mm. messing up and taking lessons from those failures, so to speak. So you went on this five-year journey with Easton. What were your biggest wins there, and how did you make those things happen? We had been married to another company, Mizuno, at the time Mm -hmm. through a partnership in the U.S., and that partnership ended. And so that then allowed Easton an opportunity to get involved in categories that had been prohibited before, so ball gloves, batter's gloves, and bat bags. And so at the core of our business was bats, right? So that was that meant everything. But in essence, we had line extensions. And so being able to execute and to make those sport categories come to life, that was probably the most exciting moment or journey for us then. And how does one stand out? I was just at a conference this last weekend, and there was probably 200 exhibitors, and there was probably 20% of them were selling something very similar. And in baseball and sports and business, like even in schools and recruiting, like if I'm a college coach or I'm trying to recruit somebody to come work for my company, how do you stand out? How did you make Eason stand out and gain that much market share? That's a great question. I think for us, it was a combination of amazing product. And I think if we go back to the bats, like the crux of it, we just had amazing engineers because this was before performance restrictions were in place. So basically, if you're going to spend at that time $200 for a bat, you want to make sure that's going to be improving your game. So the ball is either coming quicker off the bat, it's going further, whatever it might be. So at the crux of it is just amazing product. But then at Easton and then later on at Nike, so much of that too is validating the fact that it is an amazing product by getting the world's best players using your product. So at Easton, that was the Little League World Series, right? And having those kids coming from Taiwan, I can actually remember with their VP of promotions, meeting that team from Taiwan that year before, landing in LA before they were grabbing their plane back to Pennsylvania and putting bats in their hands and the like. But then for us, it was the College World Series because that was the ultimate when it came to college baseball. So ensuring that we had the best teams under contract using our product. And then it's not just the promotional side of it. It's also getting the feedback from the athlete too, in order to make that product better. So it's so good. Yeah. Hearing from the customer. Cause you're right. If you have a great marketing campaign or great influencers, but they pick up the bat and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It just doesn't work out. I can't name this school because it would probably call them out, but there was this big time division one program back in the early two thousands and the coach got, a pretty significant signing bonus to allow his team to use a certain bat. And it was flashy and it was cool. But at the end of the day, like it just didn't deliver. It wasn't a good bat. And if you went through and actually put this bat through the test, like it was 10% less effective. And I thought it was interesting because that coach at the time took a check and didn't turn out very well for the team or the players or even him because he lost trust because he put his own pocketbook ahead of his players and that cost his players money and although that company i think wanted to do really good like they had a cool name and a cool brand and all of that like the product didn't produce and as a result it just didn't work out so i think it's important that whenever you're creating anything yeah product you got to make sure the people actually love it and it's going to produce a good result 
is there a tension with that in building a brand or building a business and paying influencers to shill your product versus making sure that people like it? Like, how do you balance all of those different things? That's a great question. It also makes me think. So when I was at Easton, although my wife was from Southern California and we had both gone to college in Southern California, the company was rumored to be taking their sales and marketing office, which was in the Bay Area, down to LA. And neither one of us really wanted to do that. So ultimately, I had an opportunity with Nike. It's a regional, but then very quickly as the U.S. director of sales. And we were getting involved. This was in the equipment division. So we were getting involved in a multitude of new categories, non-footwear, non-apparel. And one of those was baseball softball product. And our flagship product was a bat. It was a softball bat at the time. Yeah. Coming from Easton, I was involved in, I think he was presenting to 20 of our top 22 accounts and selling that bat into their assortment. We had all sorts of great test results. I was doing it confidently. We were successful. We got the placement. The bat broke. It cracked. Not in every single instance, but it was not a great product. And so that's a situation where credibility of the company, my personal credibility was damaged as a result. Yeah, it's one thing to sell product in. It's quite another thing to sell great product in. And so it's going to catch up to you. And I think, especially in today's environment, the consumer now has so much more control because it's one thing to have great marketing, and I've worked some really with some really great companies, Nike in particular, from a marketing standpoint. But now that consumer has full control. So if they don't yeah. like what they have purchased, they can go online and share that bad news instantaneously. That never yeah. existed before. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about the transition to, to Nike. So first, recently I watched the movie Air. Is that mm-hmm. something that as a former employee, you're like, hey, I can't wait for that to come out. Or you're like, oh, my gosh, what are they going to say? No, I, I was lucky enough to see it with some other Nike veterans. We're part of a, an alumni group called 6453. So we had a private showing the, the week that it was released. And I think in spirit, it was dead on. And it was yeah. funny. It was illuminating. It captured the essence. That era was just a couple of years before I joined the company. But I yeah. thought it was true to form. There were some inaccuracies. But at the end of the day, it really wasn't Sonny Vaccaro who made that happen. It was more Strasser who made that deal happen and the great design behind it and everything else. But that was great entertainment. Yeah, it was enjoyable. And I was just feeling the, the swoosh, feeling the Nike brand. And what is it with Nike? How did they go about, how did you go about turning Nike into one of America's great companies? I joined after it had become a great company, right? So I don't want to take any credit for that. It's the ultimate American success story. So you clearly have to give Phil Knight a lot of credit. But he also was able to create an environment where there was good, honest feedback. He attracted some talent. And quite frankly, Michael Jordan, as exemplified in the movie Air, was a key in making that really take off, right, and validating it through the Air Jordan product line. And of course, there have been other amazing athletes along the way. So I think it is a combination of amazing product, the best athletes in the world using it, and then being able to storytell and create some amazing marketing. Like when you think about Bo Jackson and Bo Nose and Deion Sanders and prime time in the era, and then the signing of Tiger Woods. I can remember being with uh, a key account and the president had walked in as we were presenting At that time, it was a baseball softball product, but Nike had just signed Tiger Woods for $8 million a year. 
-hmm. And that president at that time said that was the stupidest move Nike has ever made. I wasn't working in golf at the time, so I was I took the hits and everything else. But obviously that marriage has turned out to be very profitable through the years for everybody involved. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, my gosh. Looking at your time at Nike, biggest lessons that you learned, biggest things that you'd like to pass on to our audience that people that are listening to this or they're a leader at some level, they, they could be a coach, a business owner, a father. What are some of the principles that you learned at Nike that you think that have helped you and impact you throughout your whole life? I think it comes down to hiring great talent, right? And I think this was true at Easton, and I loved being able to assemble a really young and talented team. But I think I realized very quickly once I got to Nike, I can remember being in a room with 50 other sales directors at the time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, any single person in this room could be the VP of sales for anybody within this industry. And so Nike had an amazing ability to attract really talented people who were passionate about sport. And it was competitive, but not in a cutthroat way. I just wanted to be just as good as the person sitting next to me. But I think if I back up leading teams, because there was a period of time where I was managing 50 at Nike, and if I have a superpower, it's the ability to identify talent. And then it's a function of attracting them into your team and then helping to develop them. And then quite frankly, if you've hired the right people, you just need to get out of the way and let them go down the fairway because they're going to feel much more empowered with you not micromanaging, and sure, you can check in and you can help and counsel along the way. So it's not as though you just evaporate. But I think in today's world, I think there's a tendency to no longer just be the coach, but to be a player coach. And so to some degree, you're right there with those that you're managing, and that can lead to some difficulties along the way. How do you so agree completely on the great talent part. There's no doubt about that. But how do you make sure when you hire them, they actually are doing a good job or the people that you're putting in charge of your program or whatever, that there's no, oh, shoot, I didn't know that kind of thing. And I took my eye off the ball and I didn't know that was happening in the company. You hear these stories with sports organizations and there's a something going on that the owner didn't know about or whatever. And these are big companies, big organizations. I'm even thinking about college athletic programs. You, know, you got a football team that has hundred players or a baseball team with 35 and five assistant coaches. How do you hire great people, get out of the way and empower them, but also make sure you still have at least an idea of how things are working? I think that's a great question. I would say you need to be ground level. You need to be in the foxhole with them upon occasion, right? But it's cliched. You clearly can't be in the ivory tower looking down on high at your team. And I think because I've been involved in organizations where, yes, the max would have been 50 people, but oftentimes that team that you're managing is five, seven, 10 people. Now, I think retrospectively, if I look back on my career, I probably would have spent even more time tapping into, hey, what are you looking for in your career? Because I was so focused on team goals and making sure that they were concise and clear and consistently relayed so that we all knew what our marching orders were. But at the end of the day, we're just individuals, right? So we're concerned about first and foremost ourselves. So I think if I had it to do over again, I think I would have spent that much more time one-on-one -on -one with individuals consistently, not just at the weekly check-in and everything else, but basically. Mm -hmm. But then it's a fine line because you want to manage, you want to lead, 
you're not looking for best friends in terms of work, especially if you're managing other people, right? So there has to be that delineation because there are going to be hard decisions back to like, how do you make sure that people are really doing what you think they should be doing? I've had to lay people off. And that's the hardest thing, at least for me personally in business. But back to the, hey, if you've made a mistake, if you have hired the right or the wrong person, I've done that a couple of times, then you have to own up to that and probably quickly, quicker rather than later. And to some degree, if you're doing empathetically enough, it may end up being the best thing on some level for that individual that you've had to impact. So good. Now, let's look at your show. You said today's a double hitter. You're a guest on my podcast and you have a guest on your podcast later today. One, why did you start your podcast? And, and two, what are some of the, I don't know, favorite memories, favorite things you've learned throughout that process? That's a great question too. When I retired three years ago, I knew that I still wanted to be involved in sports. And so I've done it in two ways. One, by creating a podcast that's sports specific, game changers within the industry, athletes, coaches, business personalities, and the like. And the other was investing in startups in the sports space. I knew very little about either. I think when the pandemic started, and at the end of my long day, I would just take off and go for an hour walk, and I started listening to podcasts. And I'm a lifelong learner, so it was such a wealth of discovery for me to realize that I could listen to almost any topic that I wanted to. And so I went, okay. And then I can remember one day, it was after dental surgery, and I up late one night, and one of my heroes, having gone to USC, was Jake Olson, who ends up being... Um, the blind snapper at USC. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how is a man who is blind able to be so active on social media? So I literally sent a note to him through LinkedIn and said, Jake, I'm starting a podcast. Would you be willing to be my first guest? And I wake up the next morning and there's an answer back from Jake and I'd be honored to do it. And at that point I had to learn how to execute. And as you well know, that startup cost when you create your own podcast is pretty high. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you don't know, but it was an opportunity for me to reach out. And then my second guest was Jim Morris, who I believe has been on your show as well of the rookie fame. So it was an opportunity for me to be connected to really interesting, successful individuals within sports. And quite frankly, were I not doing a podcast and if I had sent a note to Jake and Jim Morris, would they have responded? Would I have an opportunity to learn from them? No, probably not. It's been a great learning experience for me. What was your takeaway? First episode with Jake, what was that thing that you're talking to a guy that was a, that was blind, that was a division one football player at USC, anything that you remember from that conversation that impacted you? What's so important to Jake is his faith. Because if we go back to when he was 10 years old, he was in some ways adopted by Pete Carroll and the USC Trojans, because that was the team that he and his family had followed. And in many instances, he was there in the practice field and actually there the day before he fully lost his sight via an operation the next morning. And then to fast forward to the fact that he becomes a stellar student in high school, gets the long snapping opportunity as high school team, and then gets into USC and then is invited by Sarkeesian to actually try out. It's such an amazing story. It's just, but if I go back to the conversation with him and having read his book, so much of his strength really comes from his personal faith. So Mm -hmm. that's what stood out to me. When you hear stories like that, and that's why I wanted to start a podcast, I wanted to interview people that were smarter than me, 
right, yeah. that were further along than me that I could learn from them. And it is just like encouraging and inspiring and hearing like his story. I'm like, I have no excuses. We have no excuses. People that are accomplishing so many things in their life that have so many things that are holding them back. And I'm just like, okay, if they did it, I can do it kind of thing. And it's motivating and it's inspiring. So that's really good. And who's your guest later today? And I want to make sure I'll link that show in our show notes. I think that's a kind of an interesting topic. The majority of people here that are listening, maybe they are an athlete or a coach or they're leading other athletes. Talk a little bit about your guest that you're about to have on your show. Yeah, her name is Kirsten Jones, and she's a peak performance coach, and she's just written a new book entitled Empowering Young Athletes. So the focus of our conversation this afternoon is providing tips to parents of young athletes. Now, that may be an athlete who has literally just started out in a sport, soccer, t-ball, whatever it might be, four, five, six. She also then works with talented teen athletes who are aspiring to get the college scholarship and the like. Former Nike employee as well, although our careers did not intersect. She too has a podcast of her own. She was a talented Division One volleyball player at William and Mary. So, yeah, what better than helping the next generation figure it out? What have you seen from young people today? It was interesting. I just had a guest on recently, and he's in his early 20s. Started this really cool baseball business called the Pro Velocity Bat. And I asked him. I said, "Hey, this might be weird, but..." There's a lot of people out there right now that are looking at you and your generation as the demise. They're lazy. They're not committed. They're not engaged. I'm like, all right, should I ask this question? And he had the most brilliant answer. I'm not going to repeat it, but I'm just like, all right, is it the next generation? Is it a lack of commitment or a lack of follow through or enthusiasm or engagement, this technology laden world that we're in? Are kids changing you feel, or how do we make a better impact on this next generation? Another great question. Now, my son is 30, right? But if I think back to, we were talking before we got live here, I grew up in an era where it really was the sandlot. Like I would wake up Saturday morning after watching cartoons. If I was really young, I'd grab my bike, I'd go out and I'd play baseball all day with buddies, right? On literally a sandlot. And then I'd come back for dinner at six. Now we live in an environment where everything is organized for youth. Safety, a multitude of different reasons, it is what it is. I think I also grew up in an era where when I was playing organized sports, the coach wasn't a dictator of sorts because I had some really good ones along the way, but it was much more authoritative. And I think now in order to motivate young athletes as a coach, there needs to be more of a partnership. And I think that's true whether you're talking about a 12-year-old, whether you're talking about a 17-year-old and the like. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. I think being able to motivate young athletes is not easy because there are so many distractions, right? I grew up where baseball was the most important thing to me. So you didn't need to motivate me. But mm -hmm. now, boy, if I think about a 12-year-old, whether it's video games, whether it's huge, a multitude of dis different distractions. But I think at the heart of it, the reason why we're connected to sport is that we understand the values and the benefits associated with sport. And that comes at a very early age. You overcome obstacles. You learn how to work as a team. You learn how to take instruction to develop your strengths, the value of hard work, perseverance and the like. And I think those have remained constant. And I think the one thing that's changed in my time period with the advent of Title IX 
is that now girls have that same opportunities um, as boys did when I was growing up. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, and I keep feeling this this push to have a player-led team or an employee-led organization. So it's not the CEO that's leading. Yes, it's the CEO that's casting vision or it's the head coach that's casting vision, but they're getting buy-in from the team. They're having the team weigh in on, all right, what do we want to accomplish? What are our goals? Where do we want to go? I just saw this quote earlier today on Twitter uh, from Mike Lynch, who I had on a guest. You got to have Mike. He is a phenomenal communicator. He said, Culture doesn't change when a coach tells a player he's wrong. It changes when a player tells a player that's not how we do things here. And I'm just like, wow. And I'm like, how do we do that in our lives? How do parents get siblings to coach each other up and challenge each other? So it's not mom and dad. How do we get a head coach to challenge right their leadership team or their captains and get the captains to implement that culture? How do we get the employees calling employee-only meetings without the boss and saying, all right, team, this isn't where we want to go. We didn't hit our goal. And I'm just like, if we can do more of that, it just feels like it's the right way to go about it for this next generation. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm passionate about these things. I know you are as well. No, that quote was really powerful. And it makes me think back to, this was John F. Kennedy. And I think he was walking the the floor of NASA at the time. And I'm assuming this is true. And he bumps into a janitor and he goes, tell me about your job. And basically the janitor says, I'm sending a man to the moon. And I think it gets back to at that time, NASA had a compelling mission that everybody had ingrained in their mind that they were going to play a role in the moon landing. And Mm -hmm. that ultimately happens. And I think too infrequently today, if you're walking the four of a major corporation, does everybody that you bump into have that vision, that compelling goal in mind? I think, unfortunately, probably not. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier in sport because there truly is a winner and a loser. So if you're Pete Carroll in the day, coaching at USC or now with the Seahawks, I think it's easier for he to motivate 70, 80, 90 individuals than it is somebody who's a CEO of a company that might have 10,000 employees. But it sure. does come down to what you're talking about, company culture, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or culture of an organization. And that takes time. And that takes amazing storytelling. And I think that was part of the allure of working for Nike because it's just rich with amazing stories and, and sport. Every single day, there's something new. There's something compelling. There's something you've never seen before. And that just keeps that fluid content of storytelling alive. And so if you can bring that into play on a consistent basis as a leader, then you're ahead of the game. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, so good. Well, talk a little bit here as we wrap up Oregon Sports Angels and what you're doing there. And then we'll make sure we leave all of your information in the show notes for your podcast and all of that kind of stuff. So talk about that. When I looked back on my career, I realized that I had worked in a lot of startup environments. Now, working for companies, so working for other larger companies, but not my own money being spent. Um, But I really enjoyed that. And so this was an opportunity to be involved with founders, young in most cases, who were in that startup phase. Generally, there is some revenue at stake, but you're making a calculated gamble that there's going to be growth within that company and ultimately an exit that would benefit the founders and ourselves as investors. And I thought I was going to tackle it much more from an analytical standpoint, But what I found is it's not so much my head that guides my decisions as much as my heart, 
And so a number of the companies that my wife and I have invested in are in a space where hopefully there's going to be some profit at the end of the day. But I just think they're doing the right thing and for the right reasons. A couple are in the mental health space working with young athletes, The Zone and Nestry. And then I think you're probably familiar with the company Baseballism, and they Mm -hmm. have a new startup venture that we just invested in last week. And so it's an opportunity to stay connected to sport, which is paramount. But also I've just been fascinated in and I love business. And so it's an opportunity to marriage the two and then uh, hopefully help some young founders and do a little bit of mentoring where possible. And one of those companies, quite frankly, that we did invest in is a Jake Olson company led by a former freshman suite mate of his, Daniel Hannes. And that's a company called Engage. And they're an online platform, speakers bureau platform. So it was an opportunity to help out there as well. Wow. What a cool way to blend your passion for people and business and making an impact. That's so good. Mark, if somebody wants to contact you, where do they go and find find you? Probably the best place is through LinkedIn. So just Google my name there. And then if you want to follow my podcast as well. So this is awesome. We'll put all that in the show notes. This has been fantastic, Mark. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Thank you, Casey. I love this opportunity. and I love your podcast as well and what you're doing from a consulting standpoint. So thank you again. You bet. Thank you. Dugout Nation, no wonder why Mark has won every stop he has ever made. A wealth of knowledge. Here are the three big takeaways that I learned from Mark saying. Number one, hire great people and get out of the way. You're looking for people to surround yourself with who are self-led. They don't need to be told what to do. Your job is to put them into a great system that produces results and give them some time and some space to be creative, to put their own touch on what you do. Have some loose guardrails to prevent things from going off the track and ensure you're not just super hands-off. Jump in there and really make sure you always maintain a good pulse on whatever is happening. Number two, making money is one way to keep score, but making an impact is that much better. Figure out a way to make a lifelong impact wherever you are. Keeping score is essential in sports and business. You need to produce an ROI. You need to win more games than you lose. But don't just lose track of the people. The people are what matters. Making sure you're figuring out how to help others be successful around you is key. Get to know your team, who they are, what they want, and empower them to attain new heights. And number three, having a great pitch or a marketing campaign or something is really great, but if you're trying to recruit somebody to join your team or buy a product, if you're just a gifted communicator and can create excitement and you're trying to sell them something, but whatever you're selling them doesn't deliver, it's not going to work. You have to make sure whatever you're selling, whatever you're pitching, the product matches what you're selling. Great marketing plus a great product leads to long-term results. 